Hier komen wij in vreemd. Hi everyone, I'm Emma Norton and you're listening to Red Flag Radio, the revolutionary socialist podcast where we talk about politics, history and theory from a Marxist perspective. We're also the sister podcast to Red Flag Newspaper, which you can check out online and subscribe to. The mainstream media have shown their utter worthlessness in the past two months, providing the ideological cover for genocide, so it's more important than ever that we build a left-wing alternative media. We don't get any funding from the rich and powerful for this podcast or for Red Flag Newspaper. We don't get any funding from corporations or from the state. We rely solely on our readers and listeners. So please get a subscription to the newspaper uh, and please help out Red Flag Radio. We'll be rolling out a new way that you can support our podcast next week. So please stay tuned for that with our next episode. But today's episode is really exciting. It's a recording of a panel interview I did a few months ago at the Socialism Conference in Sydney. We thought it would be a really good time to air it because it's about the anti-war movement of the 1960s and 1970s against the Vietnam War. I got to interview two very insightful participants in that movement, Diane Fields, who's a bit of a podcast regular, um, and she was a student back in the 1960s and got involved in socialist activism through the anti-war movement. Alan Myers <clears throat> is also a socialist. Um, he's the second participant that I was able to interview, and he uh, has a bit of a different story. He's actually in America um, during he's American, and he was conscripted to serve in the American Army. Um, and was meant to be sent to fight in Vietnam um, and actually just did a lot of activism in the army against the war. Now, this is important because we currently find ourselves in the midst of another anti-war movement against Israel's horrific bombing campaign in Gaza. And we're seeing similar acts of disobedience, student radicalism, and of course, mass marches all around the world. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from this movement in the 1960s and 70s that helped end the Vietnam War uh, that we can apply to what we're doing today. Please enjoy this interview. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome everyone. We might get the session started. Woo, indeed. Um, my name is Emma Norton. I'm a Sydney member of Socialist Alternative. Um, and you have made it, uh, thankfully, to a fantastic session on how we ended the Vietnam War, the GI revolts and student radicalism. Um, and we're actually lucky enough to hear from two people who maybe didn't single-handedly end the Vietnam War, but certainly did their part um, to end that horrific conflict. So this is obviously about the, uh, the Vietnam War, which is a horrific, uh, brutal imperialist war. And it began uh, all the way back in 1955 and went on for a very long time. Uh, it was a product of the Cold War and US imperialism, but very quickly, well, not very quickly, but after about a decade, serious um, opposition and resistance to the war uh, began in uh, places like America and Australia. Uh, there were kind of three axes to the anti-war movement. The first and one of the most important was the national liberation struggle of the Vietnamese people themselves against US imperialism. 
The second was the GI revolt. So the general infantrymen, basically the, the US soldiers in the US army who started to turn against the war uh, and, and revolt against their officers. And lastly, there was the anti-war movements in the imperialist heartlands that was here in Australia, in the US and um, in lots of countries around the world. Now, the National Liberation Movement was fought and aided by a huge section of the population of North Vietnam, and it was inspiring to many activists in the West uh, who watched in horror as their government slaughtered uh, people for empire. And particularly in January 1968 with the Tet Offensive, which involved a devastating surprise attack against American forces by the Vietnamese. And while this wasn't decisive in the war itself, it really rammed home to people in the West how uh, unjust this war was, that it wasn't a war to liberate the people of Vietnam, but quite the opposite, to subjugate them. But today we're going to be focusing on the other two parts of that resistance, those axes of resistance. Um, as I said, the American soldiers and the Western populations who campaigned to end the war. And we have two very excellent representatives of uh, both of these movements here with us today. So we'll hear from Alan Myers. He's um, in Cambodia right now, so he's on the screen there. Say hi, Alan. <laughs> um, so Alan has been a socialist since before almost all of you were born. Um, he's from America and he was conscripted into the army, but he wasn't a very good soldier as far as um, I'm aware. He spent all his time campaigning against the war, getting himself court-martialed for doing that. And during the war, he actually did an anti-war speaking tour here in Australia, I'm told, which is pretty cool. Um, so it's great to have him here doing that again 50 years later, basically. Well, not really here, but, you know, on Zoom. Um, and Alan has been a socialist for all of those years, fighting for the rights of oppressed and exploited. And he's a, a proud member of Socialist Alternative. So please give him a round of applause. <laughs> We're also going to hear from Diane Fields next to me. She got involved in the anti-war campaign here in Australia when she was only 16 years old. Um, and it was her experience in that campaign that made her a socialist um, and she joined a predecessor group of socialist alternatives, so she'll hopefully tell us a bit about that. And she's been a socialist ever since then. Um, Diane is a leading member of our Sydney district, a member of the National Executive of Socialist Alternative. She's an author, a great orator and all-round badass, so please give her a round of applause too. <laughs> yeah. So I might start by asking Alan a pretty simple question. What was the Vietnam War about? Uh, yes, okay. Um, well, in, in a few words, it was about imperialist looting of less developed countries. Um, and I've got a wonderful quote from President Eisenhower. Uh, the United States was aiding the French War in Indochina even back in the early 50s. And at a, in justifying this aid, of which was the equivalent of, well, it's $400 million, which is about four and a half, equivalent of about four and a half billion dollars today. Eisenhower said, if Indochina goes, the tin and tungsten that we so greatly value from that area would cease coming. So when the US votes $400 million to help that war, we are voting for the cheapest way to protect our security, <laughs> our power and ability to get certain things we need from the riches of the Indochinese territory, territory and from Southeast Asia. That about sums it up. Well, I have a question for Diane then, which is like, why did Australia get involved? Well, I think if Vietnam had had no minerals at all, Australia and America would have still invaded because the whole context of the Cold War, the idea of spheres of influence, basically, we're not letting the other side get this country. I think that 
sort of geostrategic competition was really uh, at the core of everything. Uh, it's worth saying a bit about Australia just because Australia often, it was said, a sort of Australian nationalist, even a left nationalist version of, oh, this is not our war, as if there's some common interest of all Australians in wars or not wars. Actually, there's always been the divide. You know, our ruling class likes wars. They were not dragged in. Um, people said, oh, well, the Americans are going to war and Australia's just going to be kind of coming in their wake, forced into it, whatever. Actually, the American alliance that Australia has been part of since the 40s is very much in Australia's ruling class's interests. And in particular, the idea that they wanted to make a contribution. In fact, they weren't dragged in. They begged the Americans to invite them. And so they the whole argument really was, we want American involvement in this area, which the Australian ruling class has for a long time regarded as its backyard. What an insult to the people of the region. And so the idea was, well, Australian imperialism needs to maintain Western imperialist control in the region. The US is doing this. We want to be part of it to guarantee that close connection. Well, I might turn to Alan um, to talk about the GI revolts a bit more. So why did US soldiers start to revolt against the Vietnam War? One thing you should people should always keep in mind is that the, in most armies, there might be a small minority of people who are in the army because they like the idea of fighting and killing. But for most people, that's not the case. Most soldiers are there because they've been conscripted or because it's the only way they can make a living and, and things like that, reasons like that. Uh, they don't like war any more than anybody else does. So they need a, they need a cause to fight for. You know, like, It's not like World War II where people could be um, told that we're fighting against fighting against fascism or or in America, even, you know, in World War Two, it might have been realistic to say, oh, if we don't fight Germany and Japan, they'll they'll invade the United States. Nobody but nobody believed that Vietnam was going to invade the United States. Uh, so they had to invent uh, uh, reasons to justify the war. And. This is why the government has to do this propaganda, you know, uh, freedom population of propaganda and uh, stopping communism, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's why also why the anti-war movements and people who, who tell the truth about these things are so important because it undercuts all that propaganda. And that's what makes really, in a certain sense, makes it possible for uh, the, the anti-war uh, ideas and, and actions to take place in, in the military. And so you were already a socialist and therefore, I guess, against the war from the start um, and this, you know, before you even entered the army. So why did you end up being a soldier? Well, I was conscripted. <laughs> uh, the, in the, in the, I was in the U.S. Socialist Workers Party at the time, and we did our best to stay out, legal means of staying out of the army. But if push came to shove, we thought, uh, you can do more work, political work in the army than you can do in Canada or in or in in jail. So we would we went along and, and you know if we were conscripted we went. Um, generally, actually, at the time um, in the sixties, early sixties especially, the military did not like to draft socialists or, or other revolutionaries. That 
they, um, they had the thing called the Attorney General's List, which was a long list of, of organizations going back to the 1920s even, that if you had any connection with this, uh, they would tr try to uh, exclude you from the military. And they would, yeah, they would present you with this list when you were being conscripted, and we would refuse to sign it. And they'd say, I'll go home and we'll think about you. <laughs> Un unfortunately, after a while, it got well known in the student movement that you could uh, you wouldn't be drafted immediately if, if you refused to sign this. So all sorts of people who were not socialists also refused to sign it, and it l lost its effectiveness. So, I mean, how do you campaign against the war in the military, given everything we know about, you know, military discipline being very strict? And how did you actually do that? Well, in the most military organizations, there's a lot of free time. You wouldn't imagine that, but you spend a lot of time sitting around and waiting to do something. Uh, so there's lots of opportunities to talk to both. And, and then there's off-duty time as well, uh, you know, when... Uh, especially when you're not in a, in a fighting zone, which, as I wasn't in one within the United States. So there, there was, you know, evenings and uh, weekend passes and sometimes even daytime passes. You go into, if you're near a town, you go into town and have drinks together and, and uh, lots of time to socialize and discuss things. Um, and we also, and also uh, the anti-war movement at the time was making a very conscious effort to uh, talk to, to soldiers. They set up things like uh, coffee houses next near near military bases, which were very useful for people get, uh, getting a chance to, to talk and discuss things about, with outside military influence. So what kind of campaigning did you do? Like distribute leaflets or run discussion groups, that kind of thing? Yeah, we tried mostly to talk to people when we could. When I could, I would distribute leaflets or put up stickers and so on. But but that they could ban, uh, and, and and that's what I was court-martialed for a couple of times was was they caught me putting up leaflets or, <laughs> or distributing leaflets. But uh, mostly, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, the 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 that's mostly talking to people and then persuading people to uh, to. Uh, Go into town, and when you're in town, go and speak to these this group here, and go to go to this event here, go to this movie. One of the things, like one of the things we organized, uh, one of the things I was not court-martialed for, was distributing a leaflet announcing a speech by a retired brigadier general, who was I think it was an old Communist Party member from World War II, in the Veterinary Service, and a brigadier general. He was against the war. He's speaking speaking publicly against the war, so that uh, when I was caught handing out leaflets announcing this meeting, um, they, they were going to try me for the, uh, distributing subversive propaganda. And then they realized how silly they would look if they said it's subversive to listen to a, a retired brigadier general. So we made, you had to make use of the, of the contradictions in the whole idea that this is a democratic army a democratic or def defending a dem defending democracy when in point of fact it was doing quite the opposite and did you ever get sent to vietnam no no i didn't which was uh lucky um at the time i think it was probably uh, there were about a dozen members of the USSWP in the army when i was there i think only one ever got sent to vietnam and he was a very new member they might not have realized he was a a, a member they, they, I should say that they knew what they were doing. They knew what we were at one point. Uh, 
when they started drafting U.S. SWP members, a single base at Fort Jackson and a single company ended up with uh, something like eight members of the Socialist Workers Party in it. So they knew what they were doing, they were doing quite consciously. Of course, that was a very silly mistake they made. Most of these guys, uh, these soldiers in the SWP in that base were black, black. Uh, they were all anti-war activists. They were organizing every night. They were organizing discussions of uh, Malcolm X and and and, and U.S. <laughs> racism. Uh, they, they, the army, they they decided that was a big mistake very quickly. <laughs> so they were worried if you went to Vietnam, you'd what cause more revolts there. And yes, I think so. Yeah, I think that's that was it. That they they, they didn't they didn't want to. They knew there was a lot of resistance to the I mean opposition to the war in Vietnam. Socialists and revolutionaries um, can, can organize that sort of sentiment. That's what they were worried about. They weren't so much worried about uh, the sentiment as such. Well, they couldn't do much about the sentiment, but they could do their best to stop the organizing. Um, and how important were the civilian anti-war movements um, and civil rights movements? I mean, you actually already just mentioned them a little bit there to the, the revolt in the army. I think they were absolutely crucial. Um, the, the, knowing that there was some, some civilian support out there gave Giaz a lot of a lot of confidence to to oppose the the, the system. I should tell you, just to, by comparison, the Korean War used to be known as before Vietnam was known as America's most unpopular war. Uh, before I was shortly before I was conscripted, I spoke to uh, the USSWP leader who had been uh, conscripted during the Korean War. And he said, uh, at the time, there was huge opposition to it. He said it was very common in Korea for a platoon to be sent out over the next hill to go and engage the enemy. They would go over the hill, shoot the lieutenant in the back, and hunk, bunker down for two or three days and come back with a story about how the lieutenant had died heroically fighting off the Chinese hordes. Uh, he said it actually got to the point where the army would investigate only if the lieutenant was shot in the chest instead of in the back. Well, and so, and what about the um, the civil rights movement? So you mentioned there were yeah, there was a big uh, a big overlap in, in sentiment, you know, especially particularly, of course, amongst black black soldiers who would say, you know, well, we're fighting for freedom, are we? What about my freedom? <laughs> what about my freedom? <laughs> I'm not going to die for a, a, a supposed freedom in Vietnam when my freedom doesn't exist. And so how did, I mean, you've already kind of mentioned this, but how did your socialist politics uh, inform your anti-war activism? Well, I think the, the main thing, perhaps the main difference between being a socialist and, and being uh, a liberal opposed to the war is that, that as a socialist, we understood this is a class question. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's something that... Um, and these, therefore, there's contradictions that we can exploit in order to build opposition. It's not like the, the liberals who thought, "Oh, this is a mistake." No, we, you know, if you thought it was a mistake, then you then you'd oppose the the war in a different way. You would, you'd, you know, you'd you'd appeal to uh, liberal politicians. You would uh, try to persuade army officers that they should not be so so brutal. Uh, but as a socialist. You, you understood that <laughs> this is a class question, and therefore you you 
your politics differed in, in how you opposed the war. Well, we might come back to you uh, in a bit with some more questions, but I wanted to bring it to Diane. So you were a part of the anti-war movement here in Australia, obviously. Um, can you tell us about how the movement started? Well, it was very, very small to begin with. I think it's worth, you know, the context of the Cold War that I remember as a kid seeing these ads for, you know, probably for the Democratic Labor Party, the kind of right-wing party, um, but TV ads of, you know, why the war in Vietnam matters. And it was literally like they're going to fall down the map onto us. It was kind of a picture of, you know, the maps. Australia's lower on the map than Vietnam and a lot of downward arrows moving towards us. That was, I think, kind of summed up those Cold War kind of politics, um, which meant that the anti-war movement began from very, very small beginnings in a situation where radical politics were demonised. Um, and I think there's three things in um, that kind of provoked some response. In 1964, Menzies announced that there was going to be conscription and that conscription would include uh, being sent overseas to fight. And that prompted the formation of the youth campaign against conscription, which was largely led by people in the ALP. Probably surprised people given what's happened over this weekend at the ALP conference to realise that the ALP at this point was actually against this imperialist adventure. Then in 1965, um, the government announced that they were going to actually send troops to Vietnam and that prompted another small organisation to come into being, a group called Save Our Sons, which was focused around um, Communist Party-influenced women, some of them actually were in the Communist Party, who organised on the basis of where mothers, our sons, 20-year-old sons, could be conscripted and therefore we don't, you know, we're against the war. And then in 1966, the thing that galvanised the campuses even more was that Harold Holt, who was then the Prime Minister, announced that 500 conscripts were being sent to Vietnam. And that really set the campuses um, you know, into action in a way that they hadn't been before. The other thing in terms of these early years was the fact that the left-wing unions, most of them with Communist Party leaderships, um, from the start did take action. So the Waterside Workers' Federation and the Siemens Union, uh, when um, the announcement in 1965 that troops were going to be sent to Vietnam, they, they were walk-offs by members of those two unions, strikes, in other words, against the war from that very early, day, very early days. But it was isolated. In 1966, when other Siemens Union, Siemens union members um, refused to start to crew the ship, the Boonaroo, that was taking war materials to Vietnam. That was a heroic action, but they were isolated. They were condemned by some of the leaders of the Waterside Workers' Federation and pretty much every other union leader in the country. So that's the. I think those early beginnings are important because uh, they started to sow some seeds that came to fruition later on. Yeah, well, how did things come to fruition and you know, how did you get involved in that? Okay, well, I was, you know, I was pretty late to the party. I realised when you were introducing me, I was not 16 when I got involved. I was 15. <laughs> even yeah, even better. <laughs> True, you should always try and get involved in radical politics as young as possible. This is, <laughs> this is one of my lessons from this. Um, but, yeah, I think the, 
there are a couple of things before I got involved, which was really only in the, the run up to the big um, moratorium marches, the first of which was on the 8th of May 1970. Um, but there are a couple of things that have sort of shifted things. One of one which was actually the 1966 federal election. A lot of the anti-war activists had thrown, you know, the uh, youth campaign against conscription, YCAC as we called it, and Save Our Sons, threw themselves into campaigning for the Labor Party. The Labor Party was against conscription, was against troops being sent to Vietnam, and there was a lot of thought that we can have an electoral victory. We can end the war by Labor winning the election in 1966. Uh, and Vietnam was the issue of the 1966 election. But a sign of how popular the war remained across the board, really, at, by this stage, was that the Liberals were returned in a landslide. And that gave an opening for, well, a kind of pragmatic one for some people. Oh, well, there won't be another election for three years. Better do something else. But for people with more radical politics, actually, it was an opening to pursue an argument about what we need is a movement that's not focused on elections and so on, but a movement that actually mobilises people in the streets and in the workplaces. Two other things, well, three other things, actually. Next was the radicalism of students, that alongside this and the, the anti-war sentiment was not, not massive on the campus either. Like, the war was popular, um, but there was a minority on the campuses who were motivated to, we have to fight this. And again, left-wing people, people with socialist politics and so on, uh, at the core of that. That was given a real boost after the French events of May 1968, where the French students had played such a detonator role in what became a massive 10 million strong general strike of the working class in France. In here in Australia, the class struggle was about to explode as well, um, particularly with the basically semi-spontaneous general strikes across the country in May 1969. The um, anti-union laws of the day, called the penal powers by everyone, uh, had finally come under massive massive attack by the working class. They'd been fining unions for years for the terrible crime of exercising their bloody right to go on strike, which is our only weapon, really. And uh, the, uh, the strikes that freed jailed union leader Clary O'Shea obviously gave a massive boost to the confidence of working class fighters everywhere. And I think it helps to explain why one of the slogans of the moratorium camp marches and campaign in 1970 and 71 was stop work to stop the war. Worth noting, that first moratorium march, the 8th of May 1970, was a Friday. I think people just forget that. Everyone just assumes 100,000 people on the streets of Melbourne, 20,000 people on the streets of Sydney, must have been a weekend. It was a Friday. And final thing in terms of the, the movement growing was actually what the government did. The government were determined to, their commitment to the war was unbending and they rubbed it in our faces, which gave people an opportunity to resist. Uh, they brought uh, LBJ, President Johnson, they brought him to Australia. It's a big, big tour. We managed to have demonstrations that messed that up, at least for a short period. Um, it's when uh, Bob Askin, who was the um, the Premier of New South Wales at the time, Liberal Party, uh, students lay down on the road in front of uh, uh, Johnson's motorcade. And uh, what did Askin say? Right over the bastards. Yeah. Uh, they brought out Marshall Key, who was the, um, you know, the 
US-backed puppet dictator of South Vietnam. They brought him out for a tour, again, an opportunity to mobilise. Atrocities in the war, like the My Lai Massacre, were starting to come to to light. So all the the talk about freedom that Alan talked about, you know, the bullshit that it was given, you know, the situation in the US itself, became more and more obviously just fake window dressing on what was, you know, just a series of imperialist war crimes from start to finish. And the thing that you mentioned, Emma, in the introduction about the um, the Tet Offensive in 1968, the fact that it was becoming undeniable that this liberation movement in what LBJ had called a fourth-rate, raggedy-ass little country was beating the war machine of the greatest country on earth. Um, so the idea that the war was winnable was also starting to come kind of to come unstuck. Anyway, so a little bit about myself. Yes, how did you get involved? We want to hear. Well, all of that was kind of leading up to the people like me. I was a high school student. I will be forever grateful to two young women who were the year older than me, Um, and I'll give their names because I I know them still, Kathy Herbert and Sue Reynolds, and they came from left-wing families. I was from a working-class family, but my family were right-wing. Um, but they knew about such things as protests and so on, and they told me about things and suggested that I could get involved in them. So I started going to two things for the, the moratorium campaign, mass meetings every week uh, in the city at the Teachers' Federation Auditorium. Like These are organising meetings for the campaign of hundreds of people, bigger than lots of demonstrations these days, but you know, hundreds of people thrashing out the future direction of the campaign And alongside that, by 1970, there were 30 local groups across the suburbs uh, where people could get involved in doing things, you know, in their their local area to to build a campaign. And, uh, I mean, I've talked to you about this before, Diane, and you often talk about like a real campaign has lots of debates, kind of pretty fiery debates, actually, something that these days people can be a bit scared of or think maybe that's just, you know, a bit, um, you know, tension on the left is not good, but... Why was it essential that there were debates in these campaign meetings? Well, because we had a whole series of different political positions um, that had to be fought out in the campaign. I'll go go through some of the debates in a minute. I mean, well, I'll just mention one of them now. Um, This is one of the ones that I personally was involved in because it was in the early 70s. So it's towards the end of the campaign, really. But there was an an argument um, amongst, you know, this is, a left-wing campaign, but all kinds of people from, you know, peace activists, pacifists, Communist Party, Trotskyists like us, um, you know, quite a range of people, but all of whom saw themselves in some sense as radical, but across a fairly wide range of worldviews. And different those worldviews translated into different ideas of how the campaign should be built. So we had a big uh, debate where the Communist Party, who were you know, think the Cold War ideology, the Communist Party, where they were the real radicals. Actually, the Communist Party was generally on the moderate right wing of the campaign. And they certainly were in this case that America had restarted um, some bombing in the north of Vietnam. And the argument really became, should we continue with our demand troops out? We were bloody almost there to, to win it. Should the demand continue to be troops out, stop the war, end conscription, or should we moderate our demands to stop the bombing, negotiate? 
So that's kind of why the debates mattered. But also it was really important that the debates were had out, thrashed out, passionate arguments rather than, oh, well, let's just agree to disagree. I think yeah, you can't clarify anything unless you're prepared to get stuck in and fight it out. And if you lose, okay, the, the, the demands of the campaign might not be the ones you want. You're still part of the campaign. You still build it. But actually, in the course of it, you try and clarify your own ideas and you try and clarify the ideas of some of the hundreds of people that have come along with all sorts of confused ideas about, well, why, why is the Communist Party so moderate? Why are these Trotskyists? They, think, they seem to have more of an idea of what to do. You're actually trying to win people to your political views beyond just the issues of the, of the campaign. What are some of the other debates that came up? Well, there was always argument about militancy. Um, you know, should we, uh, how, how much should we respond to the police violence? Should we, when the police said you don't have the right to march, should we get onto the streets, push the police aside, make sure that we can actually take on, take the streets, make an impact and so on? Um, and so, you know, there was, this was particularly an issue, I think, in 1966 in the run up to the federal election where the um, youth campaign against conscription leaders, as I said, many of them, the leaders were part of the Labor Party, that the let's not be too militant, let's not be too, you know, we'll get bad publicity and so on, and this could affect the election results and so on. Actually, it was really important to try and push the campaign to the left to make it more militant, that that could have an impact on not just, you know, one or two demos, but what sort of campaign are we building? How are we going to mobilise people rather than let's only do what is kind of allowed? And as the campaign grew and, and the war became more unpopular, that was very important. Um, the other one was the, uh, should, should we actually say we are for the victory of the National Liberation Front? And that first became an issue in sort of the end of 66, early 67. Um, and again, the Communist Party opposed this. And in fact, went so far as to try and ban people having, uh, often people would come to the demonstration with the flag of the National Liberation Front. Uh, they attempted to ban, I don't know how they thought they were going to do this, ban people from having NLF flags at, at, the, um, at the rallies. But this really became an explosive issue on the campuses, um, and particularly at Monash, the Monash Labor Club. And the Labor Club in those days wasn't the ALP. It was the it was the home of the left. If you were on the left, you went to uni. Where's the Labor Club? Got to join that. And the Monash Labor Club uh, decided that they were going to collect funds to send to the NLF, and they were going to earmark those funds for military aid. <laughs> so yes, you can you can imagine you can imagine. And in fact, I mean, one of the the leaders of the Maoists at at Monash, the Maoists were the dominant force in this earlier stage. Uh, actually said, well, if you're a radical at Monash, then you collected money for military aid, and if you're a moderate, you collected money for medical aid. So, but that so well to the left. Yeah, but I, I think, but I think all of that was part of, um, it, rather than just being, oh, you're just going to be isolated and so on. Actually, it made this more of an issue in society. What is the what is the war about? What is the is is the war a just war? Are we you know doing something good or whatever? Those things were much more, 
you know, kind of brought to the forefront by the militancy of what the students were doing. And in so doing, it pulled the movement to um, the political climate to the left, and it also pulled the anti-war movement in general to the left, even though lots of people in the anti-war movement didn't agree with it. It raised a series of issues that radicalised people. And how I'm, I know this was very important to like the student movement uh, kind of wing of the anti-war movement, the issue of conscription and draft dodging, uh, which I know was a thing in America as well. But yeah, can you explain a little bit about how that was a part of the anti-war movement here? Well, hopefully people understand probably not how conscription worked. It was literally a lottery. It was like the um, the lotto draw on television. They you know have a they had a barrel and they pulled out dates. And if you were a twenty year old man and the date of your birthday came up, that was it. So you can see why people thought this was pretty appalling, and particularly you know, as as the war became more and more unpopular. But and worth saying, so a few kind of figures about how the war, uh, unpopularity of the war developed. It was not till 1968 that a majority of students at Sydney Uni here uh, opposed the troops being sent to Vietnam. But also in 1968, 75% of students opposed conscription. Um, and so I think the role of conscription in terms of it was an obvious thing for universities where there's a lot of 20-year-old men um, and, yeah, the prospects of being, it wasn't particularly, I think, all these people thought I'm going to be conscripted personally. It was a lottery, but it was that idea that this is how they feed the war machine and that was really, I think, the uh, a galvanising thing for a lot of people. Yeah. And... um I mean, I guess one question I have is like how this whole experience made you a socialist. Because you're 15 when you got involved. What made you join the the socialists at that time? Well, it was the the second moratorium, which was September 1970, and it was in Sydney. It been twenty thousand at the first one, and not that much smaller actually at this second one. But the violence of the cops was much greater. They really went for us, and you know, I just remember being, you know, charged by horses and all kinds of things. And I got arrested, and we got taken to some police station. I'd, I'd never been in the eastern suburbs, I don't think, except to go to the Gap. It was a family outing, and um, anyway, so we got to the police station. The cops realised that everyone in this wagon police wagon was under 18 and therefore we'd have to go to children's court and apparently that was a lot more paperwork. So they let us all go and, you know, gave us stern warnings about going home to our parents and not rejoining the demonstration and so on. So, of course, we all went back to the demo. And then I met these two young blokes. I wish I could remember their names, but they, they were brothers. Um, but they were both, you know, sort of standing fairly near each other, selling this um, socialist newspaper called Direct Action. And, you yeah, know, that was the kind of the socialist, the Trotskyist revolutionary group in Sydney that had any influence. And, you know, so I bought it and then they talked to me. And, like, it was eye-opening because all the things that I hate, you know, I was a young woman, of course I hated sexism, I, you know, had enough of that. 
Uh, I knew about, you know, what was happening to Aboriginal people. I uh, knew about the Gurindji strike that had taken place in 1966 and had been a supporter of that since then, Um, a whole series of things. So this newspaper, but it wasn't just that I got the newspaper, it's that they talked to me about how all these things were connected up, that they kind of, they seemed to think what I thought, but they bloody knew what they were talking about in a way that I just didn't. And so I started going to their weekly meetings. I started selling their paper, got involved in producing a high school newsletter called The Spark, which we used to just give out, you know, give out as well as selling the paper at, at, at the school gates when I went to school. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the beginnings. Yeah. But it really was opening me up to there is something that makes sense of all of this that is this is not just accidents or particular bad things, that this is all linked to capitalism. That was really a revelation. Wow, awesome. Well, uh, I might ask you both the same question and then we'll have some time for like comments and discussion. You know, people might have questions for you guys as well. So I'll start with Alan. Um, My question is basically, you know, what do you think are the most important takeaway lessons from your experience for us today? Because, you know, we're facing a growing threat of militarism and war, uh, potentially much more devastating war than the Vietnam War even. So, yeah, what are some of the lessons? Well, I think one that I meant to mention earlier, and I think might, might have overlooked, was one of the things we did, most effective things we had to do in, in the anti-war movement was not so much spreading anti-war sentiment, which was always there. It was convincing people that we could win. Uh, that's why, that's also why the civilian movement was was important, because that was backup. But just, you could, yes, you could go to a uh, demonstration and it wasn't, you wouldn't end up in jail. You could go and participate. You could distribute things, um, uh, stand up for your democratic right to distribute literature and things like that. And it was, there was a, a long time saying in, uh, in America that you can't fight city hall, right? It says that's, that's the, the, the attitude they inculcate that you, you can't, you can't oppose authority. There's no point. I remember after uh, some months after my first court martial, I was speaking with a group of people I just met recently, and we were talking about what we might be able to do. And they said, oh, yeah, there was some guy who was uh, court-martialed a few months ago. He was acquitted, but then he got sent to Vietnam. Well, they were talking about me, <laughs> but I hadn't been sent to Vietnam. But that that was the illusion, you know, that you can't fight City Hall. And, and in fact, that's what socialists are about, revolutionaries are about. Is convincing people that you can fight. Uh, the degree, how much, how you can fight in particular situations will vary considerably with the situation and public opinion, et cetera, et cetera. But you can always fight. There's always something you can do. And that's that's what's really important. Great. Same question for you, Diane. What are the key lessons? Um, so many. Uh, I think, well, one thing, just going back to the beginning, that how rapidly a politicisation, a radicalisation can come about and that capitalism is always going to you know, cause wars, economic crisis, racism, everything. Um, and so it means that quite suddenly people can lose confidence in the system and take radical left-wing ideas much more seriously than they did previously. The second thing which I've wanted to say more about before, because it really is a feature of the anti-war movement here uh, and actually other subsequent, uh, the campaigning we did against apartheid in South Africa, is the role that 
the working class as an organised force can play, that students were the detonator for sure, but actually a whole lot of the anti-war actions here in Australia had union involvement. There were strikes and so on. Um, you know, one, I'll give one example. Laurie Carmichael Jr., who was the son of Laurie Carmichael, the Communist Party union official in the metal unions, um, was uh, a draft resistor and he was supposed to go to court. Uh, he somehow failed to appear. Um, but both his parents, Val and Laurie, were arrested at the court. And then when the parents' court case came up, a 1,000 Williamstown dock workers went on strike for that. Uh, the court case was, incidentally, adjourned indefinitely. <laughs> and that meant a range of other unions, you know, came out public, you know, public statements of support for draft resistors and so on. And eventually in 1969, the ACTU finally approved union action in opposition to the war. Mm -hmm. But that was a real lesson, I think, in terms of, you know, the, the, the students can play a very important role and you'd be mad to ignore them, you know, actually such an important sort of area of social protest and radicalism. But the social power that working class people have really was demonstrated during the campaign against the Vietnam War uh, here in Australia in a way that, you know, really, that really made an impact on me. It's been sort of central to my politics really ever since. And then the final thing is that organisation and politics really matter because having a lasting political legacy from an event such as this really does depend on, to some degree, what kind of organised political forces exist at the start. And one of the sad things about this is that the eruption of the student movement recruited a series of um, key activists to revolutionary politics, and you know some of them in this room today. Um, but it was also limited by the small size of the revolutionary forces at the start of the campaign. If those forces had been bigger, a bigger, a much bigger, and more powerful socialist organisation could have been built you know, much earlier, I think, in Australia. So the implications, I think, are pretty obvious for what we do today in terms of we need to build a bigger socialist organisation. The way of the revolution Now that recording, like I said, is from the Socialism Conference that happened here in Sydney in September 2023. It was fantastic at that conference to be surrounded by hundreds of other left-wing people, to watch brilliant talks like the one you just heard given by socialist activists and historians. Now, if you've never been to one of our conferences, the atmosphere is really electric and you can learn more in a single day than you will in a whole year studying an arts degree. I can definitely attest to that. The biggest and best socialist conference in Australia is still to come, though. It's coming up in Melbourne over the Easter weekend next year. Um, that's from March the 28th to the 31st in 2024. And this is something I've been going to for over a decade now. It's a completely unmissable experience for left-wing people. Um, this year we're getting, or next year I should say, 2024, we're getting guest speakers from all over the world, including in Palestine, from Kenya, Portugal, Pakistan, Hong Kong, the US, and many more. And it's cool because you get a sense that you know, there are people like us all around the world trying to do the same thing, trying to build a socialist movement that can challenge and one day overthrow capitalism. And that's absolutely what we need if we're ever going to see an end to this barbaric system. So at the conference, there is an enormous dizzying program of over 100 different sessions which cover every topic under the sun. 
Um, Palestine obviously will be a massive talking point at the conference. We'll also be talking about the climate disaster, the history of class struggle, gender and sexuality, fighting the far right, the list goes on. If that all sounds a bit daunting, there's also a fantastic and accessible introductory series called The Foundations of Marxism. It's really good if you're new to attend some of those sessions, but even if you're not, I like to go to them. Uh, I always find the discussions in them really stimulating. I also love a spicy debate and there's a series called Marxist Debates um, at the conference as well. So we'll be talking about uh, things like Stalinism and why it's terrible, uh, debates over third worldism, even Marxist philosophy. Um, And you'll meet and hear from many of the people who we interview on this podcast actually. There's literally nothing better you could be doing over the Easter weekend than being with over a thousand left-wing people in Melbourne talking about how to change the world. So wherever you are, get yourself to Melbourne for March 28th to the 31st. Tickets are cheap as chips for a conference like this and the money that you spend on them really helps us to actually put them on, uh, put on the conference rather, get all the people from around the world to come and speak at it, that sort of thing. So it's $150 for a three and a half day conference and goes down to as cheap as $60 if you're in high school. I've popped the link in the show notes, so please get your tickets and I'll see you there. Until next time, we have a world to win.